I'd like you to do something for me. I'd like you to welcome my parents. My parents are right over here. Would you raise your hand, Dad? Give them a round of applause. What do you want for Christmas? Got your list all made out, giving it to your folks over Christmas, over Thanksgiving break, and you hope they're back there shopping and buying. You think you're going to get everything you want? Have you ever had a Christmas where there was one thing you wanted more than anything else and you became obsessed with it to the point where you thought, if I don't get anything except this one thing, I'll be happy. If I get everything else on the list but I don't get this one thing, I won't be happy. Ever had that experience? What was it? Money? Clothes? A car? Something? I remember the year I wanted a guitar. The Beatles were brand new and big in the USA. That's a long time ago. But you could tune your radio through the frequencies and as you went from station to station, they were so big, you could hear almost a complete rendition of, she loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had to have a guitar. And to sort of add fuel to the fire, one of my best friends contracted rheumatic fever and while he was recovering, he got a guitar and learned to play it all by himself and he was good and he could sing and he could play the Beatles songs. He was something. I had to have a guitar. So I told my aunt, if I told my parents, well, I wouldn't get it. They bought me practical stuff, you know, stuff that I needed, clothes, that sort of thing, shoes. But I had an aunt, I have an aunt, who would always get me the fun stuff, and I told her, I'd like a guitar. And I thought to myself, I've got that locked up, I'll be getting a guitar come Christmas. You think you're going to get everything you want this Christmas? If you get everything you want, do you think that would be a good thing? Jesus is born in the New Testament, but he appears in the Old Testament. There are a lot of references to him in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 64 is one of those references. And it talks about Isaiah wanting something very badly, wanting it more than anything else. And he thinks if he can have that, he'll be happy. Isaiah's experience parallels mine with my guitar. Let me tell you what happened with the guitar. Christmas Eve rolled around and our two families got together, 10 of us, jammed into our living room and in the corner is the Christmas tree, beneath the Christmas tree is a pile of boxes banked with uh, beautiful ribbons that filled the whole end of the room. And I thought, surely in that pile is my guitar. Well, we always read the Christmas story from Luke chapter two, so we did that, had a little prayer, and then they began passing out the gifts, passed out all the gifts. I got this cylinder from my parents. I got this cylinder wrapped in nice paper. You know, when I shook it, it rattled, sounded like something fun. Opened it up, out fell two spoons and underwear. Parents buy that sort of stuff, underwear, whoop-de-doo and no guitar. I mean, all the gifts were passed out and I got no guitar. I was one sad puppy. I was a basset hound. <laughs> it's an actual photograph of me that night. 
All I wanted to do, ask my folks, all I wanted to do was lay around and mope. I didn't even want to get up off the floor. I was dead. I mean, that guitar was the key to my life. It was my whole future. And they didn't get it for me. Nobody got it for me. Well, my uncle disappeared. And when he came back, he had a guitar with him. He had it all the time. He did that once in a while. About every year, he'd do it to somebody, act like they didn't get the thing you wanted the most, and then there it was. He brought it in, gave it to me. I had my guitar. It was beautiful. It was used. It didn't matter. It was mine. I had my guitar, and I was on my way. I was on my way. Well, the question is this. If you get everything you want, is that a good thing or not? In Isaiah 64, the prophet starts out talking to God and telling God what he wants God to do. And he tells God, God, if you'll just do this, I'll be happy and life will be better. Would you come and do exactly what I want you to do? But by the time he comes to the end of chapter 64, he realizes that getting everything he wants from God is not always necessarily a good thing. And here's prayer can help us as we move through the Advent season. Listen to Isaiah 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your, enemies, your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. When Isaiah prophesied, Israel was in decline. The Assyrian Empire was on the ascent, and they eventually made the northern ten tribes of the nation of Israel a province of Assyria. The Babylonians succeeded the Assyrians, and eventually all of Israel, all twelve tribes, became a Babylonian province. Listen to what Isaiah says in chapter 63. For a little while your people possessed your holy place, meaning Jerusalem and the temple of God, but now your enemies have trampled your sanctuary. And Isaiah wants God to step in and wipe out their enemies, wipe out the Assyrians or the Babylonians or whoever would be threatening them and give Israel back their land, give them back their city, give them back their temple. He wants God to step into the world and set everything straight. But Isaiah is not the only one who seeks a hero to beat the system at its own game. In The Matrix, Keanu Reeves is a Messiah figure. He's sort of, have you seen this? Now, you know by seeing this, I mean on TV. You know what I mean? In The Matrix, he is sort of an ordinary citizen who is recruited by the underground because they think that he is the one. The one? He's the one who can break through the Matrix and free civilization. They think that he is the Messiah. Go back a few years and Arnold Schwarzenegger in Jingle All the Way is a Messiah figure. When the movie starts, he's a dad who doesn't have time for his kids, but by the time you come to the end of the show, he's the hero. He's rescued his son, he's cleaned up on the bad guys, and he's the hero. He's a Messiah figure, somebody who sweeps in and sets everything straight. He follows a similar storyline in True Lies. 
Now, I'm not sure if those two movies were marketed towards children who don't know their fathers, whether their fathers are at home or not, or towards parents, fathers who feel like failures. But there are two movies that struck a chord in America presenting to us Messiah figures. Clint Eastwood is always a Messiah figure in whatever movie he's in, whether it's Dirty Harry or Secret Service Guy or you know, whatever he plays, cowboy, so is Harry Potter. So is James Bond. Have you noticed how many movies flood the market that present us with magnificent heroes who sweep in and save the day, Superman and Batman and the Phantom and Spider-Man? Now think about that. We are buying at the box office or at the video store a steady diet of good versus evil movies featuring Messiah figures who make everything right. What does that mean? I think it means that people feel like they're not in control of their lives, not the way they'd like to be. And if you're not in control of your life the way you want to be, you fantasize, you dream about the day when you might be or when some hero comes in with extraordinary powers and does what you can't do. You'd like to be that person. In fact, I think we Americans sit in front of the set watching those kind of movies and we think at some level, consciously or unconsciously, we think, I'd like to be like that. I'd like to be able to face any enemy and win the day. I'd like people to think that I was the superhero. You see that tendency even in Isaiah. Isaiah 64 says, Isaiah prays to God and says, rip the heavens apart. Come down, Lord, and make the mountains tremble. Be a spark that starts a fire, causing water to boil. Then your enemies will know who you are. All nations will tremble because you are nearby. So this desire for a Messiah figure to come in and make everything right is a human desire. It's a human inclination, but it's not always a godly inclination. What I want you to see is that in Isaiah's prayer, he does what most of us do when we pray passionately, angrily. He tells God what to do, and he says what he thinks is best for God to do. Now think about that. Is it wise for us to tell God what to do? What if God did everything that everybody told him to do? What would the world be like? Would you still be here? God, any enemies? couple of questions for you. Can you as a sinful person, according to the Bible, pray passionately and with deep anger and still pray with pure motives? Second question, since you know no world but this world, none of us know anything but this world, isn't it possible that we are saturated with the values of this world and have no clue to the way God thinks or the way he wills this world to be? So how can we tell him what to do with any sense of wisdom? It's a little bit like a two-year-old trying to tell mom and dad how to run the family. The two-year-old has no clue. First thing I want you to take away from this chapel is this. Don't blame. Don't blame. Don't say as you move through life, the problem is out there. And if God would just take care of those people, I'd be all right. Don't blame. 
Isaiah continues his prayer in verse 5. He says, you came to help, to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. Notice before he's saying, Lord, come wipe out your enemies. Now he's starting to talk about his sin. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. I used to read the works of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Russian writer, things like one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich and First Circle and Cancer Ward and the Gulag Archipelago. I used to read those books and feel such sympathy for the people of the Soviet Union. They suffered so much and so unfairly. And I used to think that if Solzhenitsyn could just come to America, he and I could be great friends, probably, because he wanted rights and freedoms for the people of the Soviet Union, and I was in such sympathy with him. Then as I read his work, something occurred to me. It, it occurred to me that this man is a prophet. Prophets don't have many friends because they speak the truth with a razor sharp tongue and wherever they see injustice or corruption or decadence or evil, they lash out at it. In the process, everybody bleeds. And it dawned on me, if Solzhenitsyn came to America and met me, it wouldn't be long before he'd be telling me what was wrong with my life. Well, interestingly, Solzhenitsyn did come to the United States. He came to live in Vermont for a while, and while he was here, he was asked to speak at Harvard University's commencement. When he spoke, he didn't lash out at the Soviet Union, our formal rival in, in the Cold War. He lashed out at the United States and pointed out for our benefit how decadent we are and how evil we are, just as I thought. Isaiah has a similar experience in chapter 64. He begins by saying, God, come down and wipe out my enemies, judge them. They deserve this. And then it occurs to him, wait a minute. If God comes down, he's not going to stop with judging my enemies. He's going to judge me too. Am I ready to stand before God's unblinking gaze? He decides he is not. Second thing I want you to take away from chapel this morning is this, focus on God. First, don't blame. Second, focus on God. When we stop blaming and we start focusing on God, we receive fresh insights into our own lives and what's wrong with us and what needs to change. One day I said to my wife, why can't you say anything kind to me? I mean, in the last few days you've said nothing that isn't critical or unkind or judgmental. I pulled that grenade out of my pocket and pulled the pin and rolled it over to her side of the car to see what would happen. She didn't say a thing. It was like she threw her body over the grenade and took the blow herself. And in the silence, it seemed to me that the Lord spoke to me. And he seemed to say, David, what makes you think it's all her? If your attitude was different, do you think you might hear her comments differently? 
And I said, I want to apologize. It's not you. It's me. When you stop blaming and you focus on God, you receive fresh insights that teach you how to live better. Stop blaming. Focus on God. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet sees God and he sees God in all of his holiness. And, and Isaiah is overwhelmed. He says, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I can't stand in the presence of God. Now the truth is, Isaiah was a good fellow. It was like he was a pastor, a good pastor. He spent his time in church, he served the Lord, but when he came into the presence of God, God is so holy that Isaiah's sins were magnified until he saw them the way God sees them. And instead of saying, I'm not such a bad fellow, I'm no worse than Bill over there, he said, I'm the worst sinner there is. When you focus on God, that's what happens. You don't have any reason to blame somebody else. You start saying, Lord, I need help myself. The frightening thing about all of this is that sometimes when we ask God for something we really want and we insist on it, he lets us have it. That's a scary thing. I hope you never get what you want, but God doesn't want you to have it. If you look through the Bible, do a little research for those times when God said, okay, you can have what you want. It's not what I want you to have, but you can have it. You find tragic stories. So God allowed Lot to move down to the city of Sodom. And Lot thought he'd made the best choice the best choice to advance his family and his career. And in Sodom, Lot lost everything. And in fleeing from that wicked city, he lost his wife and nearly lost his life. And God said to the Israelites, all right, you don't have to go directly into the promised land out of Egypt. You don't have to go directly there. You can take a different route and for 40 years they wandered around in the wilderness until every one of that generation died. When you study the Bible and you discover the times when God says, okay, have it your way, you're, you're reading sad stories. Trouble always comes. That's one of the reasons I asked you the question when I began, if you got everything you want for Christmas, would that be a good thing? It might be. I don't know, I'm just asking you, would it be a good thing? I got that guitar and took it everywhere I went. Bought myself one of those teach yourself to play the guitar books, worked at it, but you know, it really didn't click with me. I learned to play something. Do you know the theme from Peter Gunn? If you guys were in high school band, they sometimes high school bands play it, it goes like this. Bum 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 bum. I learned to play that on my guitar. Bum 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 bum. That's all I learned to play. I mean, there's more to the song, but that's all I learned to play. If you handed me a guitar today, I could find that again. You know, it's not very deep in the guitar. That's all I learned. I had to have it. It was the key to my future. It was my future. And I was a miserable boy when I thought I wasn't going to get it. But when I got it, learned something from that. 
what I learned was having is not as important as being. Having everything you want is not as important as being the person that God wants you to be. And being is the greater part of the equation. What I want you to take out of chapel this morning is first, don't blame. Second, focus on God. Verse 8, Isaiah says, Yet, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, you are the potter, we are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord, do not remember our sins forever. This is a memorable word picture, the potter and the clay image. God is the potter, we're the clay. We're wise to remember it. It speaks about our powerlessness and his authority. It speaks of our need for him to shape our lives and to fire us in his kiln before we reach our full potential in him. It's a great image, but it's a, an image that has its limitations as all images do. It has a precedent. The book of Genesis says that God created man out of the dust of the earth. So there's the precedent. We are clay. It has a limitation. The limitation is this, God did not make man out of the dust of the earth and then fire him in his kiln and set him on the shelf of his heavenly palace to look at day after day and enjoy. Genesis 2, 7 tells us what God did. And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul a living soul. In Ursula Heggie's book, Stones from the River, two children begin making birds out of mud. They start making mud balls, I suppose, and mud pies, and maybe someone makes a little mud man, and then they get the idea, let's make mud birds. And so they fashion these little birds out of mud. And if they've made mud birds, what are they gonna do next? They're going to try to fly the mud birds. And you know what happens. They make the bird and sail it out like this, and it just falls in an arc right into the ground and makes another mud pie. And they keep on doing this, and they keep crashing these birds until finally one of them says, I know what's wrong. I know why we can't make birds that fly. It's because we're sinners. I read that, and I thought, that's stupid. It's not because they're sinners, it's because they're human. They can't make anything the way God makes. But if they were not sinners, if they were sinless, they would be God and they could make whatever they wanted. There was something to it. The Bible says that when God made you, he not only fashioned you, but he breathed into you the breath of life and you share the life of God. You are a living soul. You're more than the body that your soul sits in. You are a living soul. In this sense, the potter analogy helps us understand our relationship to God, but it doesn't cover all the bases. It doesn't get at all the information about God and man. And Isaiah says, O Lord, you are our father. And then he jumps to the pottery illustration to tell something of what that means, but not all of what that means. And I say, let's go to the analogy of God as father because a potter can scrap his flawed work. A loving father never scraps a flawed daughter or son. 
not a loving father. A loving father forgives. Verse 9 says, Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. O look upon us, we pray, for we are your people. Isaiah starts by saying, Lord, come down with justice and wipe out my enemies, your enemies, Lord. And then he recognizes his own sinfulness, is reminded of that, and realizes that he would stand in judgment as well. And he closes by saying, Lord, be gracious to me. Give me grace. What is grace? Well, let's start with justice. Justice is getting everything you deserve from God. Stand before God in judgment and God says, guilty, guilty, guilty. Here's the punishment. That's justice. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. The sentence not being carried out against you. Grace is getting every good thing you don't deserve from God. The third thing I want you to take away from chapel this morning is this. Ask God for grace. Ask God for grace. You know the song, All About You? It winds up with these words, it's all about you, Jesus, and all this is for you, for your glory and your fame. It's not about me, as if you should do things my way. You alone are God, and I surrender to your way. That's the spirit of Isaiah 64. And reading it, and meditating on it, I come to this conclusion, that I'll say to God, I'm not the potter, I'm the clay. But that's okay. God made me this way. I will ask the potter what he wills me to do. As you consider your Christmas list for 2002, how about adding one more item? It's not a thing so much as it's a prayer. The prayer goes like this. Lord, show me where I blame others when I should be confessing my own sin. Through the busyness of this season, I will regularly take time to focus on you. Grant me grace, Lord. Give me what you know I need. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me, please, so that we can pray together? Heavenly Father, we confess, we think we know what's best for our lives and what we need from you. But this morning, we would lay down that pretense and say, Lord Jesus, teach us what we need to know and grant us grace from your hand. Father, I pray for the students here this morning that as they prepare for final classes, for papers that are due and for exams that must be taken, that you would give them what they need in these hours and through it all to remain in touch with you so that underneath them through all this time and overarching their lives is a connection with you and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.